यू आर लिसनिंग टू अमिंट प्रोडक्शन प्रॉट यू बाय एच टी स्मार्ट कास्ट Hello and welcome to Mint Dialogues, a weekly podcast where we focus on the big questions in personal finance and investing. My name is Neil Borate and I head the personal finance team at Mint. I will be your host for this podcast. The podcast is a Mint production and is available on htsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcast producing platform. Hello everyone. Uh, today we are joined by a very special guest, Sifra uh, Lenton from Gateway House, to discuss a very interesting topic, which is India's first big bull uh, and India's first stock market boom. And in fact, this boom spawned the very foundation of India's first stock exchange, the Bombay Stock Exchange. So, Sifra, could you give us a picture of that time? of the cotton boom uh, that sprung the stock market eventually uh neel actually uh, you know uh, bombay from the deccan the kind of quality of cotton that we uh, exported to china our cotton was very popular in china it is known as deccan short staple cotton but not so popular amongst the english mills because the english mills needed long staple egyptian cotton or american cotton Now this is significant because although we had a booming cotton trade and a lot of the brokers were cotton traders as well as well as opium traders and bullion traders and share brokers a few in the in the 1850s there were just a handful of uh, share brokers there was not that much interest in trading in shares as there is today i mean our markets have reached uh, 60000 but in those days it was it was just a sort of an informal association to share to sort of trade in the few bank shares now coming back to the cotton uh, trading uh, business which was actually the great white staple on which bombay's fortunes were built on what actually increased as a call or created intermediate capital for bombay city to really grow was this intervention of the american civil war Bombay already had a very sort of it had a intensive trade in cotton and opium because the China trade also was on at that point and uh, in opium as well huh? had, uh, in opium with China so uh, in parallel to the same period what we talk about the 1840s 1850s 1860s but in 1860 what happened 1861 to be exact on the 12th of April 1861 the american civil war began and as information began sort of filtering through to bombay there was a great demand for deccan cotton as we called it or short staple mm-hmm. cotton because the english mills could not really stop functioning they needed their raw material so there was a great demand for deccan cotton and initially the price started rising slowly you know but right, so basically this is because the american supplies to the uk stopped right? the american supplies stopped because because of the fight between the southern states the 11 southern states the confederate states along against the union that is the 13 northern states so the 11 confederate states wanted to sort of break away from the 13 states and as a result of which great britain refused to recognize the confederate states 
So they stopped the export of cotton to England. Now, with that stoppage of the export of cotton to England, England had to look to India and look to Deccan cotton to sort of plug that gap. So that's when the cotton prices started going up. And because of, uh, you know, the supply demand gap being great initially, because, you know, initially, as they said, there were, there are uh, studies done on this. They said that the acreage of land involved in uh, basically growing cotton was around three lakh hectares or, you know, whatever. But that acreage had to increase to meet the demand from the English mills. So not in that interim between the demand supply gap, the uh, price of cotton went up enormously. And with the price of cotton, it was even said that people would take the stuffing, cotton stuffing out of their mattresses to sell it in the market. It was, it was that much of a craze. But this did not immediately translate, uh, Neil, to the boom in the stock market. That happened a little later. And how is that, Sitra? So, uh, all of these cotton traders, I presume, would have made fortunes. Yeah. So, in that sense, is they did make fortunes. They were... Uh, they did make the money and there was nowhere they didn't have avenues for investing this money. Now, there's one person or one personality who's identified greatly with this boom. And that was uh, the broker, stockbroker. He was not only a stockbroker, he was a cotton broker. He was a bullion broker. He was a stockbroker. So, so all that in was one. Fame. All in one. All in one because the markets in that sense were related and... Uh, Premchand Roychand, I mean, he was a Rajasthani giant. He was enormously successful. I mean, he became a stockbroker at the age of 18. I mean, he was born in uh, 1831. And just at the age of 18, he was registered as a stockbroker. What really set him apart from all the other brokers of that period was that he could speak fluent English. And he had all the characteristics of a patient, thoughtful, knowledgeable, and instinctive trader, even at a very young age. So even seven or eight years later, he had already sort of made a name for for himself with all the English agency houses. Everyone knew Premchand Roychand by then. So when this cotton boom sort of took place, he was well-placed. He was placed. He knew the cotton market. He knew the players in the cotton market. And every supplier, every uh, distributor, uh, he knew the bullion market, and he knew the share market. So, Sitra, what are the what are the parallels with um, Rothschild here? So there is there is that famous story of how Rothschild sent an agent uh, during the Battle of Waterloo, I believe, find out who mm-hmm. won, and then he got the news early, so he went and bought a lot of UK government debt and made a fortune. So did. Are there stories about Roychan sending out ships to sea to figure out how the demand is moving? Uh, you know, I don't know about that, whether he sends ships out to sea, but he was always ahead of the curve. So, you know, there's not a lot uh, known about Premchand Roychan and his dealings, except for the Bank of Bombay Commission hearings, you know, because the Bank of Bombay uh, sort of went bust and it was a presidency bank. So being a presidency bank, it was a quasi-government bank. And uh, as you know, I mean, the history of the Bank of Bombay was the Bank of Bombay, the Bank of Bengal and the Bank of Madras are actually the forerunners 
for the Imperial Bank of India, which in 1951 became the State Bank of India. Right. So, uh, so basically is that he seemed to be ahead. I mean, he was ahead of the curve. We don't know too much about him because he preferred to be under the radar. He was a very low-key individual. It's just that with the first stock market run of 1861 to 1865, he came into the spotlight actually much against his wishes. Because everything you read about Premchand Royachand says that he was low-key. But he was a bit of, he was quite a hero at that point in time. Because everything that he did, every, every recommendation he made, every company he floated just sort of hit gold. I mean, he was known as a man with the Midas touch. So I don't know about the uh, correlation or the parallel with Rothschilds, but it was said actually by one of the earliest uh, biographers of Prabhjant Royachand and a good friend of his, actually Dinsha Wacha, who's the founder of the Indian Merchants Chambers, that if Royachand's luck had not run out on him and he had actually gone to the city of London, as we know as one square mile or the financial heart of London, he would have beaten the Rothschilds and the Barracks. Right. So he must have had a great, uh, great information network, I'm sure. But uh, I really don't know. We don't have factual data on that. Right. But what happened instead, of course, is that the cotton boom came to an end. And right. Could you describe how things went into reverse for Clinton version? Uh, you know, Neil, it has to be remembered that everyone talks about the cotton boom actually being from 1861 to 1865. Yes, the boom in cotton demand began at that point, but the boom in the stock market did not begin at that point. So the boom in the stock market actually began in 1863 because all through the newspapers and people who were a little more cautious kept saying that this war is not going to last. You know, the so American when we talk war. about the stock market at that point, it was people gathering under a tree, right? That's the legend. That's how. That's a legend. I mean, it is said that, uh, you know, that the brokers basically gathered under that banyan tree, you know, where the well is on the, uh, well, southwest corner of Ornament Circle today, okay. where, you know, and actually those little wells and all are actually powers for people to actually for cattle to come and, you know, sort of uh, drink water there. There was a well even for people and that was the old cotton green. So in a sense, earlier brokers would congregate there, but they kept shifting their, uh, you know, shifting their location. It wasn't that they always traded there. I mean, then I believe later on, they went to the corner of uh, Meadow Street and Rampart Road. So, you know, they kept shifting the position, but there were very few brokers in the beginning when the when they actually began congregating, there were four or five brokers, but then it sort of increased to 10, 15. And by the time Reuchen joined, I think in, uh, say, in by 1850, he became a stockbroker, as I told you, at the age of 18. It was around, say, 20, 25 brokers. But by the time he the stock market crash took place in 1865, there were 200 to 250 brokers. Right. And this association, the Native uh, Share Brokers Association, which later on bombed mm. into the BSE, did right. he start, start that or was that sort of pre-existing? Uh, you know, uh, Neil, it has to be remembered that uh, after the crash, of course, uh, he was in tremendous debt. 
but he recovered spectacularly unlike other big merchants of his time in the sense is that he paid off each and every debt of his two or three debts which he was responsible for were written off under the law that was passed by the government at that point to ease the insolvency and bankruptcy proceedings so uh, it is said that prachand roychan is the founder of this associ- association which was founded on the 9th of july 1875 1873 i think 1873 or 1875 but uh, i have a feeling i mean i haven't come across this but i think there were more than i mean he was the star founder of it but there were other people who were involved in forming this association okay so that's so that's interesting so the association was formed way after the cotton boom and bust the way after right. the debts right mm-hmm. so if we could discuss the impact of um his debts on the banking system because again the parallels bank of bombay and then what happened with harshad mehta and sbi later mm-hmm. or indeed what happened with nirav modi and pnb later are history mm-hmm. keeps repeating itself so if you could tell us a bit about that uh, facet uh you know neil actually you cannot exactly compare i mean history repeats itself only because human nature never changes so you may have better regulations coming in you may have technology and digitalization coming in but human nature somehow keeps behaving in the same way so uh the the details are not exactly the same but let me go on it was just that uh that events so took place or came together that it gave people a window or gave uh, roychan at that point of t- point of time a window actually to use the money in the bank of bombay for speculation and help his friends and associates too and i think the thinking at that point of time was that it was such a high it was not really uh it was such a high that people just felt that things were going to things were on a roll and things did not come to an end you know they had forgotten that there was a likelihood it happens very often when there's a euphoria of the stock market that there could be it's a bubble and it could burst but then you're on that roller coaster and you don't realize when to stop and when to get off it reaches a point where you don't know you, there you have no option but you can't stop any so i think yeah. that's something that happened to roychand also and so i guess one uh, sorry sir one distinction to yeah. draw is that mm-hmm. he didn't commit any fraud right i mean mm-hmm. the bank of bombay very legitimately very legally lent him the money to invest in stocks uh, whereas in case of harshad mehta and obviously nirav modi there was out and out fraud uh i i don't know about the harshad mehta nirav modi uh, issues but coming to roychand i mean they probably you could draw the parallel between the two uh, coming to roychand two or three things happened one was he was on a director on the board of the bank of bombay and he was actually put as a director on the board by sir bartle frame who was the governor of bombay secondly is that roychand is the rules that the bank of bombay being a presidency bank you know was actually governed by very strict rules it could not do any foreign exchange transactions so in fact in 1842 the first bank that could deal in foreign exchange was founded in bombay that is the oriental banking corporation or the bank of western india as it was originally known so it could not deal none of the presidency three presidency banks could deal in foreign exchange 
what happened more pertinent to our story is what happened in 1860 the provision for note issue the banks would issue their own notes and the bank of bombay was the official issue of notes for bombay presidency that power was taken away or that was taken away by the government so then uh, was it sort of the same common currency the rupee throughout india or were these banks essentially issuing their own currencies they were uh, by 1860 the bank of bombay was issuing currency notes for ba- for bombay presidency so right. at that point they started a currency office and that power to issue notes was taken from the bank of bombay now anyway it was sort of restricted because there were a lot of laws a lot of rules and regulations it could not invest it could only invest in sovereign bonds it could not lend or loan money against property it could not lend or loan money against shares there were a lot of restrictions in the bank of bombay and with and with the power of issuing currency notes being taken away from it what happened was that it lost its the little money it was earning on that so as a result of which the rules and regulations were loosened for the bank and it was allowed to lend money to individuals it was allowed to lend money against property it was allowed to lend money against shares even partly paid up shares it was allowed allowed to lend money even beyond a 3 month period which was a restriction so with the regulations being loosened to enable the bank to be profitable what happened it opened a window of opportunity for roy chand who became he was the person everyone in the bank went to to decide who to give loans to how much to give how much to you know so with the market boom it became tempting in a sense to actually draw the bank of bombay money out play with it speculate and return the money back with the interest paid so it was a great way even for the bank to earn money and i think that was also something if i'm not wrong which have happened during the harshid netta scam so i mean i think it was just a question that he had got into such a role and everyone was looking to him it looking to him that he couldn't really get off that uh, roller coaster ride or treadmill as you call it i think that's what happened there right so if you can tell us about the linkages with the real estate market did he did this money eventually flow into reclamation projects and uh, become part of real estate bubble uh what what we what you're calling is a real estate bubble was not actually it was the reclamation projects now bombay being an island city it has got limited land as we all know so the only way to get land at that point i mean since the 18th century we've been having reclamation after reclamation to increase the land area of the island now with the with the city becoming prosperous a number in fact the earliest reclamation company that was launched in 1859 was the elphinstone land company now what happened with the stock market boom there was plenty of money floating around i mean it was said that bombay benefited the net profit from the cotton boom was anywhere between 70 to 80 million pounds the net profit we are not even talking about turnover so where does all that money go all that money went into every possible financial association bank new banks were floated reclamation companies now according 
to one of the economic historians who I read, he said that uh, what happened during the boom on the market was there would always be a triangulation of three companies. That means there would be a bank, there would be a financial association, that is a non, in today's term, you, you would call it a non-banking uh, finance corporation, and there would be a reclamation company. So, first the financial association would be floated, so this was called a triangulation by him. A financial association would be launched, that association would lend money to put into bank shares, banks would lend money to put into reclamation shares. So in that way, each of these corporate entities really fed into the frenzy of the uh, reclamation boom, the banking boom, the cotton boom, the opium boom, shipping companies were launched, cotton press companies were launched. So that's, uh, but the problem with the 1863 to 1865 boom was that a lot of companies which were floated were paper companies. They were just put up just to raise money. So there was nothing really, there were no really, there were no real assets as such. So when the crash took place on 1st July 1865, when all forwards matured on that day, most of these companies were found to be just paper companies. So that's where the problem actually arose in this bank, in this stock market boom. So were there no areas in Bombay that we could point to and say that, oh, they were reclaimed as a result of that boom? Uh, Neil, you can say in the sense that like the Bakley Reclamation Company was launched in uh, during this boom period. And although it uh, sort of, uh, there was a slump, the only reclamation that took place during this period was for the railways to bring the railway line right up to Kulaba. So you know that Kulaba used to have a railway station because the cotton green had shifted from Horniman Circle to Kulaba. So they needed the railway tracks to come right in. So the Backway Reclamation Company was formed. And it did, during that brief period it was there, it did reclaim the land needed for Queen's Road and for the railway embankment. But soon after, of course, the reclamations were carried out during the 20th century. But during this boom period, the limited reclamation was done. Of course, when you have the Elphinstown Land Company, you have the... Uh, uh, the Port Canning was a Calcutta company. There were one or two companies that did do reclamation, but what really comes to mind is the Back Bay and the Elphinstown Land Company, right. which did the Kulaba reclamation. Elphinstown Land did the Kulaba reclamation. Right. And I believe the most famous real estate landmark from this episode is the Raja White Tower, uh, which right. is named after his mother, Peyton Roy Chuck's right. mother. Uh, and I think there's some story where uh, she was uh, she was visually impaired and therefore the clock tower would tell her what time it is. Is, is that correct? Uh, yes, Neil. I mean, that's a story going around and that's a story which uh, Shada Dravedi has said. I mean, she's written a biography on Premchan Roychan. And with the families, with the cooperation of the Roychan family and... Uh, there, I believe, I mean, the family story is actually because hers is based a lot on the family lore and family stories and whatever they could show her. Now, the family story is, yes, you're right, that she was losing her eyesight and she needed to keep track of time because as giants, they would eat their dinner before sunset. 
And uh, so at first, when Roy Chan, now during the boom period in October 1864, he had written a letter to the government of Bombay saying that he wanted to contribute to the building of the Bombay University Library on the fourth campus. And later, he wrote a second letter a few months later saying that I would like to have a clock tower attached to this library and I'm going to undertake the cost for both. And this clock tower had to have loud bells or loud music. There were a number of tunes that it played. Now, today, with the ambient noise that we have in the city, we can barely hear the clock tower unless you're at Oval itself. But in those days, the noise or the sound would carry through and people would keep track of time with the chimes of the clock tower. So, yes, it is true. I mean, if it's coming from the family, it is true that he built it for his mother, who he was very fond of. Right. Now, one interesting thing that uh, I believe your piece mentions is that he had a lot of these, what today we would call <laughs> Benami transactions, where uh, mm-hmm. shares and property would be bought in the name of his acquaintances, his servants and so on. But in yeah. those days, it was, was there a reason for it or it was just customary practice? I don't. I don't know whether there's a reason for it or not. Now, uh, this economic historian, Radhisham Gumta, has written about these Benami transactions. Now, the impression I get from reading the various sources of books that I've read is that he was very low-key and didn't really want his name to figure in most of these things. His name really never figured, frankly speaking, because he was in a position of tremendous trust uh, not only with the government, but with the broking community, with the merchants, with the English agency houses, with the banks. So, for example, is uh, his, he was a director of the Bank of Bombay. He was a director of the Asiatic Banking Corporation, which went bust after after the after the crash of 1865. But by and large, he never liked to be forward. Unfortunately, this whole incident pushed him forward. And while untangling the Bank of Bombay Commission, Royal Commission that was set up to really resuscitate this bank and recapitalize it, basically sort of unraveled all these transactions and found that there were a lot of the transactions that were done on his advice and prompting were actually Benami transactions. Right. So if we could conclude with an assessment of Premchand as a man and the legacy he left behind, um, from what we've discussed so far, it seems that he um, got indeed carried away by the stock market boom, by the cotton boom. But ultimately, he repaid most of his debts. Uh, he gave us some lasting monuments like the clock tower. Um, and indeed, he founded what is today the Bombay Stock Exchange. And that's a tremendous legacy. How do you see it? You know, I mean, I, I see him as... Uh, a person sort of swept up with the events, a person actually the center of the storm. He was like the calm in the storm that was all around him. But more importantly, he believed in one uh, phrase, and I think he sort of uh, kept to that throughout his life, was my word is my bond. Now, that is actually the logo of the London Stock Exchange. My word is my bond. And I don't think he ever forgot that. Whatever happened, Although he was down and out on his luck, even all his uh, all his uh, donations, like the Rajabai clock tower, it cost him four lakhs. 
I mean his donations to girls' school, like the J.B. Pettit School, the uh, uh, Bombay Scottish Orphanage, the uh, Cathedral Girls' School. All these donations which he made were all donations that he fulfilled. And he also apparently paid back all his debts. There were certain debts which were not paid back over write-offs in the case of the Bank of Bombay. But I think it's important that traders and businessmen and merchants today actually realize that trying to find loopholes in the law or in regulations is not really the key to success. Actually, keeping to your word and fulfilling your word is far more important. It's just, it is those kind of values and ethics that are important because there's one incident. Everyone knows that Premchand had such a phenomenal memory. He remembered every transaction and his Munins accountants would take down that transaction at the end of the day when he would, from memory by rote, he would tell them what to put down. So even the smallest amount of money that he, that someone kept with him for safekeeping or for investments were recorded. So that generation remembers him as a man of his word. And that generation also remembers him a bit of a star. Of course, he was made a scapegoat and blamed for everything that went wrong. But there were lots of other big Bombay merchants who also sank with the boom and were reckless. They realized they were reckless, but it was really too late to correct everything, anything at that point. Indeed. Thank you so much, Sitra. I hope that our viewers will come back a little bit wiser um, and take note of this very, very interesting episode in our country's history. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Neil. Thank you for tuning in. We will be back next week with a fresh episode. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at neil.b at livemint.com. To give us feedback, you can reach out to us also on HT Smartcast. We are present on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn and Clubhouse. To listen to more podcasts, log on to htsmartcast.com or suno naye nazariye se. This was a Mint production brought to you by HT Smartcast. HT Smartcast.